Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Introduced this morning, compliments of the social distancing Utah Symphony. We've made it almost to the end of April. And though some states are easing their lockdowns, the coronavirus is still very much with us, months after it first arrived on our shores. It was a classic case of ready or not, as Martha Teichner will report in our cover story. Here's my pile of U.S. government pandemic preparedness plans. It's not as if we weren't warned. By early February, the scope of this pandemic was really becoming quite clear. We have it very much under control. So how did we get blindsided? We wasted the entire month of February doing almost nothing to get us ready. A lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat. Coming up this Sunday morning, the telling timeline. She's already a Broadway and Hollywood legend. Now Julie Andrews is launching a brand new podcast aimed at encouraging children to read. This morning, she'll tell our Tracy Smith all about it. When the dog bites. Julie Andrews once played a character who could find her way through any hardship. Simply remember my favorite thing. And it seems she's made of the same stuff. I really love feeling happy and being happy. And I'm certainly not a sad personality, I don't think. Oh, God, I sound so Pollyanna-ish. <laughs> That's one of the things we love about you. In some ways, you are Maria. <laughs> well, no, I chat too much. That's the point. <laughs> a word with the legendary Julie Andrews ahead on Sunday morning. Times like these bring out the best in people and the worst. Mo Rocca will be offering us a short history of quackery. 200 years ago, if you were sick, you'd reach for opium or mercury. Or maybe you'd ask for mummy. How could you be assured that you were eating a ground-up mummy and not just some random guy? That is true. And so people would sometimes take, like, dirt and soil and ashes, and they'd be like, oh, this is bona fide real mummy. The rap on quackery, past and present, later on Sunday morning. Holly Williams has a Sunday profile of Homeland star Claire Danes. Aaron Moriarty takes us on a sobering visit to a New York potter's field. Faith Saley is having a bad hair month. Nancy Giles doesn't know what to wear. Plus Steve Hartman, Jim Gaffigan, and more on this Sunday morning for the 26th of April, 2020. We'll be back in a moment.
Ready or not, America was first infected by the coronavirus months ago. We've been trying to play catch-up ever since. Our cover story is reported by Martha Teichner. At 4 o'clock in the morning on Thursday, January 9th... Justin Bieber revealed that he's been battling Lyme disease. Taking second billing to Justin Bieber's big revelation... Says that he's getting treatment... Coronavirus got its first mention on a CBS News broadcast. Scientists say a new virus related to SARS may be responsible for a mysterious pneumonia outbreak in China. The New York Times beat us with its first coverage January 7th on page 13. By then, Chinese public health officials had already notified CDC Director Robert Redfield about the virus. Redfield had immediately briefed Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, who in turn alerted the National Security Council. So how did we get from those small but worrying early warnings out of Wuhan, China, to now, to leading the world, not in managing the crisis, but in confirmed coronavirus cases and deaths? To untangle what went wrong, start with a nod to Watergate. What did the president know? Thank you very much, everyone. And when did his White House know it? We now know that Xi Jinping went before the state council, the high governing body of China, and told them in a secret session on January 7th that the issue in Wuhan was so serious that he was personally stepping in and taking control. Laurie Garrett is a Pulitzer Prize-winning science writer and author of The Coming Plague. The head of state of a nation of more than a billion people doesn't personally intervene in a little outbreak with a half a dozen cases. Uh-uh. We now know that the CIA was passing on to the White House. Look, there's something potentially catastrophic emerging. Breaking news on January 17th. Mystery illness. The first U.S. attempt to shut the door on the virus. So they are screening passengers arriving from central China. But four days later, on January 21st, the CDC reported the first case of COVID-19 here. This is certainly not a moment for panic or high anxiety. It is a moment for vigilance. Interviewed at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, President Trump reacted this way. We have it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China. But events indicated otherwise. I'm declaring a public health emergency. Of inter- On January 30th, the World Health Organization declared a global public health emergency. Outside of Chicago, there are new fears. And the first known case of person-to-person transmission of COVID-19 in the United States was announced. There are nearly 100 other Americans now being tested. Foreign nationals other than immediate family of U.S. citizens and permanent residents. The following day, the Trump administration restricted travel from China. Will be denied entry into the United States for this time. But not from Europe. That wouldn't happen for more than a month, although Europe was the source of many U.S. infections we know now. But the China travel ban may have bought a little time. My expectation, and I have to say in retrospect has quite wrong, was that there was uh, massive planning happening in the U.S. government. Dr. Ashish Jha 
is head of the Harvard Global Health Institute. I assume there was a lot of ramping up of testing and, and getting our country ready uh, for what was coming. But? Well, it's really become uh, clear now that there was not. The fact that the CDC's test kits didn't work meant that coronavirus was out there, spreading, and no one knew where. Experts worry it could become a pandemic. What came next? Six weeks of schizophrenia. A lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat. Dueling versions of reality. Coronavirus outbreak took a very frightening turn overnight. We have it very much under control. But the nation was preoccupied not with coronavirus, but with impeachment. Witch hunt that's been going on for years. Good to see you. How are you? And the primaries. Welcome to the campaign trail, Nora. <laughs> I think it was only at the end of February, early March, that it started dawning on us that, my God, we wasted six weeks of early warning time. Here's my pile of U.S. government pandemic preparedness plans. On top, November 2005. It wasn't as if there was no roadmap. Structural issues. Who's in charge of what? What's the CDC's role versus the state health role? These are all in every single one of these plans. And they've all been debated by very wise people in governments, both Republican and Democrat. And set aside, just as the Trump administration set aside the so-called playbook, handed them by the Obama transition team. I was one of the people who oversaw the development of the playbook. Until March 2017, Beth Cameron headed the office responsible for pandemic preparedness within the National Security Council. Our job was to coordinate policy and to work with departments and agencies to make sure that we had the programs in place to prepare for the next pandemic and to be more agile in responding. She said was because the office was eliminated in May 2018. Gone, what Cameron describes in a Washington Post op-ed as the ability to get ahead of emergencies. So if our office had still existed, one of the key jobs would have been to make sure that we understood what was happening with the strategic national stockpile. We didn't have tests. We had no ready supplies of any equipment that could determine who was infected and who wasn't. In the May issue of The New Republic, Laurie Garrett is scathing, blaming Donald Trump, but also Xi Jinping. Both of these men have screwed up everything that was possible for them to screw up. Certainly, I think China's lying uh, made, it, made our response harder. Uh, I think our federal government's response, it was one failure after another after another. According to Ashish Jha, it didn't have to come to this. The total shutdown that we have experienced in our country, I don't believe that was necessary if we had done our job right in January and February. We were asleep at the wheel for so long that by the time March arrived, uh, we really had no other choice but to shut the country down. It's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. When the president said that on February 27th, the financial markets were tanking and the known number of COVID-19 deaths began to ratchet up. The miracle the president predicted hasn't happened yet. To unleash the full power of the federal government... On March 13th, President Trump declared a national emergency. Two very big words. On March 31st, he predicted... This could be a hell of a bad two weeks. At the end of those two weeks, on April 13th, he patted himself on the back. All of the things we've done, nobody's ever done a job like this. This past Friday, 
COVID-19 deaths in the United States passed 50,000. A bad hair day is one thing. A bad hair month is quite another. And then there's that eternal question, even more difficult to answer these days, what to wear? Time to face facts, first with Faith Saley, then with Nancy Giles. A few weeks ago, you might have heard me ask this. Hey, ladies, what are we doing about hair color? A superficial question for sure, but one that's on a lot of people's minds. Yes, we're dealing with issues of life and death right now, but we have to survive in between. This pandemic is not just black and white. There's a lot of gray, a lot of gray. This is my head on lockdown. And my very gray hair. And here are the heads of a lot of other people. You guys are about to see me look like like one of the witches of Eastwick. I got another, like, look at this. Even the mayor of Chicago violated her own advice and headed to the salon for a haircut. I take my personal hygiene very seriously. Her governor, J.B. Pritzker, had different feelings. I'm going to turn into a hippie at some point here. Do you see this? It's not just our heads. I want you to take a look at my nails. They're looking very quarantine. And it's not just women. Call it vanity, call it self-care, call your colorist. Mine's Nancy Braun. Caring about the way you look right now is not entirely superficial? No, because it's real. It's just trying to do the little small incremental things that make you feel like you have a touch of control in your life where you feel like you've had none. So what are you doing to take care of your clients? Somebody created this little container where you're able to put color in one side and developer in the other seal it and protect it. Oh my gosh. Nancy sent me one of those kits. That's hair color? That's hair color. And then I went to hair color grad school. Or was it kindergarten? Are you good at coloring between the lines? Yes. Good, because that's what I need you to do. You got to color between the lines. Is it already working? Are things happening? Things are happening. This is science. I'm gonna wash that pandemic right out of my hair. I love it. Honestly, Nancy, I had no idea it would make me this happy. I'm so happy. Go to the other side, work your way down. Nancy's not the only one helping her clients this way. Here's stylist Kim Saratori in New Jersey. She's usually part of the CBS hair and makeup team, but these days she's dropping off color and giving lessons from at least six feet away. This is it. And let's say you don't have a stylist. You can order hair color online or put on your mask and gloves and head to the store. Better hurry. The CEO of Walmart says shoppers are no longer panicking over toilet paper. They're panicking over their toilette. Lately, we've seen more grooming products. People are starting to need a haircut, and so you start to see more beard trimmers and hair color and things like that. That DIY, do-it-yourself feeling is a heady one, but what if you can't do it yourself? And if hair color isn't what you need... Ah, here we go. (laughs) Try a virtual bang trim. 
or help your partner get Zoom ready. Yeah, there you go. Bottom line is, do try this at home. If you want to, if you want to go gray or purple or Chewbacca, you grow, girl. I did it myself. Look, we're all in this hairy situation together. I may care a lot about my roots, but I'm letting my facial hair grow. And when it gets really bad, I'll treat myself to a facial mask. This is Nancy Giles. Whether slicing lemons in his kitchen, reading a book in his nook, or sporting that trademark black tee and blazer, leave it to Michael Kors to look good under lockdown. Okay, what's the whole outfit? What have you got down there? You got some like... Okay, you ready? Okay, so you know what? We okay. stand up. Uh-huh. I've got my cargos on. And for one of the most recognizable names in fashion... What Coors is wearing these days isn't just about style. We want the things that make us feel like our best self. Um, That when we put it on, we feel confident. Because when you feel confident, you're going to have a better day. We all have to stay to a schedule. Because we do want to know what life's going to be like when we come out of this. Let's face it. What we're wearing right now says a lot about how we're feeling. Like, like the, the most wallpaper. It's, a, <laughs> it's the most stylish backing I've seen doing oh, these. Sophia Tang is the creative director of Bloomingdale's. I'm going to share some ideas. She gave us a private tour of the flagship store in New York. From a retail yeah. point of view, what what kinds of things are you seeing people doing? So there's the very logical and expected like clothes that are comfortable. Right. DJs, robes, loungewear. Uh, workout clothes. We're definitely seeing a spike in pajamas. Yes, comfort is key. Just ask Robin Givon, a Pulitzer Prize winning fashion critic for the Washington Post. I mean, there are going to be good days and bad days. There are going to be days when your anxiety gets the better of you, when the stress gets the better of you. And, you know, I, I think sometimes it's okay if you just want to wear your pajamas and sort of take a moment. But cozy shouldn't define the day. I think if you just have a favorite sports jersey or a favorite pair of sneakers that you love or a favorite piece of jewelry, just anything that can remind you of happier memories. And memories are a big part of what Laura Lipman is doing every evening. An author, Lipman trades in those pajamas once a night for an outfit that has a special place in her heart. She photographs herself in it and posts the image on her Instagram page. And I did it, and wow, this feels great. Mm. I don't know why, but I'm of the mindset right now that anything that makes you feel good, you should be doing it. I really like the very basic lace Ann Taylor dress that I wore to my stepson's bar mitzvah 13 years ago. But it brings back this entire weekend. And back to Michael Kors, who's donating $2 million to coronavirus relief efforts, he sees a brighter future of style and substance. I think when we come through this, I think we're going to see that no one wants to give up comfort. But at the same time, I think we're going to all enjoy getting a little dressed again. 
I think there's going to be, you know, that moment that you want to put something on that gives you that boost of confidence. So I don't think we're going to live the rest of our days in slippers and sweats. I hope not. Experts are on TV seemingly around the clock offering all kinds of advice. And then Maraca reminds us there are the quacks. Not only do they create the cure... A self-described genius entrepreneur with a coronavirus prevention pill arrested by the FBI. Because you take this pill once a day, you cannot contract the virus. You're saying that silver solution would be effective. Televangelist Jim Baker sued by the state of Missouri to stop promoting silver solution, a so-called cure for COVID-19. Totally eliminate it, kills it, deactivates it. Yeah. They're just two examples of what's considered modern-day medical quackery. Quack actually originates from the word quacksalver, which is a Middle Dutch word that means somebody who boasts or brags about their selves. So it's someone on the street corner who's hawking their wares. Dr. Lydia Kang is the co-author of a book on the long history of quackery, which she defines as the promotion of a treatment or cure without a solid scientific basis. In other words, fake medicine. And it's generally thought to have reached its heyday in this country toward the end of the 19th century. When I hear the word quack, I instantly think snake oil salesmen. Why? So way back when, it was at the end of the 1800s, there was a guy named Clark Stanley who was selling a liniment that he claimed had snake oil in it. And he was saying it was basically could cure everything. As for what was actually in it... It had beef fat and pepper and turpentine, but there was no snake oil in it. And he made a ton of money off of it. But many discredited practices were genuinely considered best practices in their time. For thousands of years, tree panning, the drilling of holes in the head, was used to release evil spirits. And long before the current opioid epidemic, Opium, the highly addictive narcotic derived from the opium poppy plant, was a respectable go-to pain reliever. They used it for everything under the sun. So, you know, if you're having a bad day, you would take some opium. You're nervous, you take some opium. If you have some crying babies at home and you're a busy parent trying to go to the factory, you dose them up with some opium. Heroin, a derivative of opium, was once even sold over the counter by Bayer, for sore throats and respiratory ailments. At the opposite end of things, there were equally unscientific remedies. My gosh, they use so many different things in enemas. Pretty much anything in your kitchen cupboard could go into an enema. So things like milk and honey. Tell me about the tobacco enema. (laughs) You've probably heard of the term blowing smoke up someone's. Yes, that's where that expression comes from. In England, for a little while, they were actually used as a means of reviving drowning victims. And remember mummy eating? You're glad you don't. One of the weirdest things is that Egyptian mummies were taken from their tombs, stolen, and sold overseas because they were considered this fantastic remedy for everything. How could you be assured that you were eating a ground-up mummy and not just some random guy. That is true. And so people would sometimes take like dirt and soil and ashes and they'd be like, oh, this is bona fide real mummy. Now, lest we mock our benighted forebears too much, are there any 
accepted practices today that might very well be seen as quackery in 50 or 75 years. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's funny. When I was in medical school, there was this saying, which was, half of what we're teaching you here is wrong. We just don't know which half. (laughs) 50 years from now, the things that I think are going to be really considered right now kind of barbaric are going to be things like the way that we screen for cancers. So, for example, doing a colonoscopy and having to drink that terrible prep and going to get the actual colonoscopy done. Of course, colonoscopies work. They're essential in screening for colon cancer, an important distinction from certain products being pushed today. And so there's lots of public concern about COVID-19. And so scammers everywhere are including that in whatever they're marketing. Dr. Stephen Barrett runs the Internet site Quackwatch. The most dangerous is uh, so-called... Miracle Mineral Solution, MMS. Miracle Mineral Solution is an industrial strength bleach. That's right, bleach that has been falsely promoted as a cure for everything from HIV to malaria and now COVID-19. The FDA pretty much uh, drove the sellers out of the U.S. market. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the bag. Yet this past Thursday, this President case. Trump wondered out loud Someone whether injecting household disinfectant into the body might kill coronavirus. Right. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside. Medical experts and manufacturers were quick to point out that consuming those products can kill you. In recent weeks, accusations of quackery have been leveled against two of television's most famous doctors. Heart surgeon Dr. Mehmet Oz was criticized after hyping the use of the drug hydroxychloroquine as a treatment for COVID-19 when the benefits are far from conclusive. Well, that's where hydroxychloroquine plays a role. We've been talking about it a lot. That's the the malaria drug. He has since reversed himself. Dr. Phil McGraw, a former clinical psychologist, incorrectly compared the disease's danger with other causes of death. 45,000 people a year die from automobile accidents, 480,000 from cigarettes, 360,000 a year from swimming pools, but we don't shut the country down for that. He too backtracked. While the peddlers of quack medicine may have mixed motives, Dr. Lydia Kang says the patients should always be treated with compassion. And a lot of it really just comes down to fear. People don't want to be sick. They're afraid of being sick. They don't want to get worse and hope. They want to get better, and they'll look for whatever they can to do so. She's a respected actor on a critically acclaimed television series who considers fame a four-letter word. Holly Williams has a Sunday profile of Claire Danes. You've spent a lot of your life, I mean, on a film set. Mm -hmm. You were a child actor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, That must be really weird. It's not weird for me because it's been my whole life. No! No! Claire Danes has been a working actor for three decades, known for performances that hold nothing back. Are those classified documents? For eight seasons, she's channeled the brilliant but troubled Carrie Matheson on the series Homeland. It's very important. It is very meaningful. I want to read you something. It's from a review of Homeland. Claire Danes' chin 
does something remarkable when her face shows emotion. Her eyes bulge and dart. Oh, She's almost dancing and you worry her energy might blow a fuse in the uh -huh. camera. Oh. Do, I mean, do you recognize yourself in that description? Um, yeah, my face is quite uh, rubbery or something. My face just is really expressive and thank goodness because I do my work with it, but it betrays a lot and that can be a real liability in life, but it does serve me as an actor. With what she calls her rubbery face, Danes has taken on unorthodox, unglamorous roles that other actors might shy away from. Don't be silly. I knew I was different, but not less. An autistic scientist in Temple Grandin. I could see details that other people were blind to. Why don't you love me? The clinically depressed Mirabelle in Shop Girl. Are you just biding your time with me? We gotta have to. We gotta haul asshole. And the defining role of Carrie Matheson, a CIA agent struggling with bipolar disorder. Are methodical, meaningful, momentous, and Okay, I'm gonna get you a bit more Ativan to settle you down. I don't need to settle down. Tell him. I'll tell him. You know, to play a character. We visited Danes in Morocco last summer. Set, makeup, action. As she filmed Homeland's final season. The show has kept pace with current events. This ending of a war, the longest in our history. Sometimes eerily seeming to predict them. Danes has won two Emmys and two Golden Globes playing Carrie. And cut. Print that. That was fantastic. But Homeland director Leslie Linker Glatter told us it's a risky role. A female lead who's damaged and flawed, but still heroic. I think it was a brave choice, but it's also an exciting choice. How many characters are as rich as this for women that are on TV or films? I think it's a, a role that doesn't come around that often. And she sure jumped into it. It's been great for me as an actress because so often, especially coming out of my 20s, you know, mm. I was playing ingenues or characters who were completely defined by their romantic experience or the guy. <laughs> I'm in love. His name is Jordan Catalano. He was left back twice. Danes was just 14 when she was cast in her first leading role as the angsty teenager Angela in My So-Called Life. Because he doesn't want people to, like, know about it. The series only lasted a season, but it still has a cult following. By the time she was 16, Danes was starring opposite Leonardo DiCaprio in a Romeo and Juliet thick with sexual tension. My pilgrim, lips that they must use in prayer. Danes looked poised to follow the typical trajectory of a young Hollywood starlet, but instead made different choices. You famously turned down some parts in movies that turned out to be pretty big. Mm -hmm. Titanic, for one. Yeah. Why? The Titanic, specifically, I had just finished filming Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio. It was another romantic epic. It was just so identical to this last thing that I had just done. And yeah, it just wasn't right for me in that moment. Do you regret it? 
no, 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 not at all. It wasn't, it wasn't my destiny. I don't really... Her um, destiny well, was to take a break from show business and enrol at Yale University. I had been working throughout my entire adolescence, really, and was starting to feel a little like a bonsai tree or something, a little strange. <laughs> I mean, literally stunted? <laughs> yeah, in some ways. Just hanging out with kids my own age and learning how to do that um, was as important as whatever academic thing I was doing, which was also vital. Danes has always seemed wary of fame, even as a 15-year-old on the cusp of stardom. So I've had time to adjust the idea of fame. It's a little frightening, but I don't want to be afraid of it, you know. Fame is funny. It, it does... I've been... It always makes me squeamish talking about it. It just feels inherently embarrassing. What? But Why is it embarrassing? I don't know. I don't know. It just does. But a career as an actor is something she says she always wanted. Whose idea was it for you to act? It was totally my idea. From the age of five, I was really clear that this was the thing that I wanted to do. She credits her parents, both artists, for helping her negotiate show business on her own terms. They raised her here, in Manhattan's Soho district, back then a bohemian enclave. We took a stroll through the uh, old neighbourhood just weeks was, before the city went into lockdown. Because you had to legally prove that you were an artist to live in Soho. How, do, how does one prove I, that one is I an artist? I don't know, and I think it was easy to cheat. So, <laughs> Dane still lives a few blocks from where she grew up and told us she's watching Homeland's final season at home, yeah, along yeah, with yeah. the audience. It all sounds very close to the plan she first laid out, as a budding teen star. I just want to be a sane person. <laughs> you know, I want, to, I want to be a person who has a life and who acts. Is that what's happened? I mean, have you sort of achieved your goal? A sane person who acts? Yeah, I think so. I think I'm pretty sane. I mean, knock wood. I don't want to tempt fate. This has all gone much better than... Yeah. Than what? Than I had ever imagined or hoped, yeah. So... Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person. And I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like. All at the same time. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the artist, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. A gifting moment is always around the corner. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Gift easy with Gift Mode on Etsy. Slowly, very slowly, we're getting back to business in some parts of the country, including, Luke Burbank tells us, one very popular farmer's market. If you were walking down Ballard Avenue in Seattle last Sunday, you might have thought your eyes were playing tricks, but they weren't. There really was a line of people stretching down the block, 
waiting for the bell tower to chime 10 a.m., which signaled the reopening of the Ballard Farmer's Market. Washington was hit hard by the COVID-19 outbreak with more than 700 deaths. But thanks to social distancing and a flattening of the curve in the state, just over a month later... I'll do the small one. A small sign of something almost resembling normalcy returned. Of course, there were fewer vendors than usual and a lot more rules. People stood six feet apart. There was a strict one-in, one-out rule. Once capacity was reached... You can hold on just one moment. If you could go on that back one right there. Thank you. With many people shopping from their cars. We just thought that this would be a good opportunity to support local businesses and get outside. People seemed happy to wait in line, mostly just to have something to do, but also to get their hands on amazing fresh produce. We got the Dutch fry, the binche, it's a great frying potato. Like Brent Olson's potatoes, which he drove all the way across the state to sell. People, I think, are kind of fearful of going to the grocery stores a lot more than just this outdoor effect that we're seeing right now. Karen Bean was selling her organic honey from a safe distance. This is a card reader. I have to hand this six feet away to somebody who's driven up. Thank you. On March 13th, Seattle shuttered its farmer's markets. But while the city's most famous public market, Pike Place, remains mostly closed, the Ballard Farmer's Market was able to reopen, sort of. Doug Farr is the general manager. Do people see this as something that's maybe more boutique as opposed to just going to the standard grocery store? Yes. I very much know that uh, in our conversations with the city, there was a lot of it that they were referring to us as an event. Farr and the growers he works with are quick to remind people that what they sell is food, not unlike grocery stores, which, of course, have remained open. In essence, we are a safer alternative than grocery stores. The amount of people that are in a grocery store at any given time is having access to that product. These farmers are the people of which have touched that product for the first time. They're bringing it to the farmer's market and they're giving it to you. And they're giving it in open air. On a typical Sunday last year, more than 20,000 people might show up to browse the fresh local produce. That number was way down this last week. But even so, with the sun shining and the market somewhat open again, it was nice to be reminded that this too shall pass. is on the menu for hungry families in this story served up by our Steve Hartman. While most restaurants in America are shuttered, this one is hammered. In fact, Bruno Serrato is feeding more people today than ever before. Twice a week here in Anaheim, California, the cars line up by the hundreds. Two families! And although his fine dining now has all the ambiance of a NASCAR pit stop, really, really, really. 
You can't beat Bruno's prices. Thank you. It just costs a thank you. Bon appetito. Which is all many of these people can afford. What does that mean to you? Uh, that we could survive another day. That we could live another day longer. Bruno is catering to the growing legions of the desperate. They break my heart. A mission for which he is very well suited. Pasta. Buon appetito. Enjoy your dinner. I first met Bruno 10 years ago in the aftermath of the recession. His White House restaurant was struggling, but here he was, Are we hungry? giving away free fancy dinners to kids at the local Boys and Girls Club every night. All gone. I came back years later after fire destroyed the original restaurant and put his charity work in jeopardy. <laughs> Bruno was devastated. Hi, Bruno. But back to feeding his favorite customers within a week. Was everything good? He even expanded his efforts. And then came coronavirus. Unfortunately, all those years of charity have left him deep in debt. Enough is enough. Did you get a loan? I don't know yet. I just prayed that sooner or later we get something. Could you lose the restaurant? If I had to have the choice, you can save the restaurant or you can save the charity. No doubt about it, I would take the charity first. You may end up in the food line yourself then. How can I stop? And that has always been his response. How can I stop? During the recession. Why should I not? After the fire. How can you stop? And today. It's impossible to stop. It's a constant theme. The more that is taken from him, the more he gives away. This month, with the help of volunteers and sponsors, Bruno will donate more than 300,000 meals. And if this crisis is anything like the others, he will somehow emerge brighter than ever. Next time, you have to interview me when I'm on the top of the Statue of Liberty with the American flag. Can't wait. <laughs> Hallelujah. Viva la pasta! It was her singing voice that first made a legend of Julie Andrews. So wouldn't it be lovely if her voice could introduce children to the joys of reading? The other day, Tracy Smith had a chat with Julie Andrews about that very topic via Zoom. Uh, I hope that's about as good as it will get. If you knew what I had, Mickey Mouse lighting here. Even on the computer at her Long Island home, Julie Andrews can still command a screen. So how are you doing? Well, uh, just fine, thank you. Good morning to you. How are you? I'm doing just great. Are you uh, making the best of this uh, odd time at home? I am. Reminds me of the war days this particular time. I don't know if it does uh, for anybody else. Yes, I was going to mention you were a little girl in London during World War II. I'm wondering, are there any lessons from that time that might apply to this time? It's a recognition, actually. It is another kind of war, something that I've certainly never come across before in my life, and I don't think many of us have. It's like a very surreal science fiction movie, in a way. It's hard to grasp that it's real, and yet you know that it is. It's probably fair to say that Julie Andrews has had a lifetime of surreal moments. At 13, she sang in a command performance for King George VI. All I want is a room somewhere. At 20, she conquered Broadway as Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady. 
as I expected. Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. And this, you may recall, was her very first movie role. It's super califragilistic, expialidocious. You may not know that the on-screen nanny had a real-life toddler at home, her daughter Emma, who joined us for our chat. Let's start at the very beginning. That's a very good place to start, Tracy. <laughs> I trained her well, um, as you can see, Tracy. <laughs> When Mary Poppins was released in the summer of 64, Emma was barely two and a true child of Hollywood. I went shopping with my nanny at the time in, a, in the children's section of a department store and there was a display set up of Mary Poppins cardboard cutouts, life-size figures of Mary Poppins. And I remember stopping and looking and pointing and saying, that's my mommy! And then suddenly becoming aware that a couple of women behind me were saying, isn't that sweet? That little girl thinks her mother is Mary Poppins. And, <laughs> and I was like, no, but, but that really is my mommy. <laughs> and now, in a way, Emma Walton Hamilton has become her mother's co-star. Together, they've written more than 30 children's books. And this week, they'll debut a new podcast, Julie's Library, where listeners can hear stories read in a very familiar voice. We're hoping that these stories will bring families together, will bring all of us together. And encourage reading and literacy and, I mean, all those subliminal things that, that go along with enjoying a good book. I have confidence in confidence alone. It all sounds practically perfect. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti. But Julie Andrews' transition from legendary songbird to children's author was, by her own admission, difficult. Small and white. In 1997, she lost her four-octave soprano singing voice after vocal cord surgery. When you lost your voice. Did you see a blessing in that? I didn't at first. I must be truthful. That was one of the hardest things to deal with. And um, I did think it was maybe one of the worst things that could possibly happen because I enjoyed and loved singing so much. I knew I was going to go crazy unless I did something that felt creative and that I enjoyed. And the timing of it was exactly right because Emma and I began to write together our children's books. And it became the thing that I embraced when my voice had gone. And Emma said to me one day, one of the loveliest things, which is, uh, Mum, you've just found a different way of using your voice. And I think, for me, it's a great, great joy. Hello. And as if writing a whole library of children's books wasn't enough, Dame Julie has also written a couple of best-selling memoirs. You've worked your whole life since you were a young girl. Do you find comfort in that, in working? Because you're keeping busy now working on several things. Yes, I have worked all my life. I don't think I know to do anything. I mean, I love kicking back. Believe me, I'm quite a lazy girl a lot of the time. But it's uh, having something to do that I love is very necessary. And I am used to being busy. I don't think I would be very happy if I weren't. Well, now, when anything bothers me and I'm feeling unhappy, I just try and think of nice things. It almost seems as if Julie Andrews has become a little like Maria. Raindrops on roses, 
and whiskers on kittens. The perpetually positive governess in The Sound of Music. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. She's the character who showed her family and the world how to deal with adversity. And in a way, she still is, especially now. I simply remember my favorite <laughs> things and then I don't feel so I think so many of us have learned lessons from your mom's characters in the movies. I mean, I think about in this time, you know, focusing on my favorite things. And I'm wondering to you personally, are there lessons that you've learned from your mom that maybe apply now? Absolutely. Well, I share my mom with a lot of other people who <laughs> who wish that she was their mom. And I, and I totally get it because she's a fabulous mom. The lessons that jump out at me the most, perhaps one is when in doubt, stand still. I'm just going to say that, sweetheart. We finish each other's sentences. And right now, that's so applicable. When... And it is very applicable right now. When in doubt, stand just still. stand still and wait until, you know, until the way forward is clear. There was another one that, that my mother used to say. Oh, uh, actually, my mother and my aunt, they used to say, this will have a beginning a middle and an end. And so just wait it through. Six weeks in quarantine and counting for Jim Gaffigan and family. How on earth is he spending the time? Have you seen the news? I mean, all the news. Because I have. That's right. I've seen all the news. All right, fine. I haven't seen all the news. But over the past six weeks, when I'm not preparing food for and cleaning up after my five vandals, I'm watching news. I'm watching news, reading news, like I'm cramming for an exam. Jim, can you come help me with homeschool? Jim, can you help me with the laundry? I'm almost embarrassed by what I considered news prior to this whole pandemic. Remember when Harry and Meghan moving to L.A. was considered breaking news? They've announced they're stepping back from their royal duties. Well, this is really their own sort of Brexit. I guess those were the good old days. And I watch everything. All the shows, all the coronavirus town halls, the mayoral briefings, the governor briefings. My daughters are getting tired of my jokes. Believe it or not, how that can happen, I have no idea. Even those presidential briefings, well, some of them, I'm not a masochist. We've done this right, and we, we really, we really have done this right. I've seen the same infectious disease expert on multiple channels. Joining me now is Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Anthony Fauci. It's like I'm stalking them. Let's just say I watch enough TV to know that Sanjay Gupta's schedule is ridiculous. Anderson, this is this is inexcusable. I mean, it's just inexcusable. I've even gotten to the point where I'm watching BBC News, the news of our cousins across the pond. The Prime Minister has announced the most drastic limits to our lives that the UK has ever seen in living memory. I don't know what it is about BBC News, but I must find it comforting. Maybe it's knowing this is happening to someone else, or maybe I... Just think the British accent is a little less panicky 
The Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, said this is a sombre day that reinforced why the public must adhere to social distancing rules. Or maybe I just like the opening of the news program where there's just the world spinning and there's no sound and then suddenly it's... Done, done. Like it's an episode of Law and Order. Bum, bum. But mostly what I've realized by watching BBC is that we're not in this alone. This is not America's pandemic, or this is not Europe's pandemic. This is a pandemic affecting all of humanity. And we're counting on you nerds to solve it. Go science, please. Thank you. The coronavirus pandemic has focused New York's attention on a sad and generally overlooked spot that seems like it's from another era. With Aaron Moriarty, we travel to Heart Island. On a deeply cold Saturday morning in January, we took a nearly empty ferry to a speck of land in the Long Island Sound. For most souls who go there... It's a one-way trip. Heart Island is where the city of New York buries the unknown, the unclaimed, or those too poor to afford a burial. At 101 acres, it's the largest potter's field in the country. We're going today because it was her birthday, and I'm commemorating her 42nd birthday. We went with Elaine Joseph, whose infant daughter Tamika is among the one million people buried here. No cameras or cell phones are allowed. There are no markers. There's a mass grave. You just know there's bodies buried there because they told us so. So. But you go. I go because it's all I have. It's all I have left. I bring a little stuffed animal left. In January 1978, Elaine was a 23-year-old nurse, pregnant and living with her boyfriend, when she unexpectedly went into labor and gave birth a month early. It was my first child, and I was happy to be having her. Days later, she says, her daughter needed emergency surgery for a heart deformity. New York City was in the middle of a crippling snowstorm. I couldn't get to the hospital there were no trains, there were no buses, there was no public transportation. Elaine was home when she got the news. And they said she had another cardiac arrest and she died. You had to hear that on the phone? Yes, I couldn't be there. That's one of my main regrets is that I was not there at the hospital with her. Um, excuse me. It's, it's, it's 41 years, but it never goes away. When Elaine did get to the hospital to claim the body of her baby girl. They said, she was already buried. I'm like, buried? How? They said that I signed to have her buried in the city cemetery. Did anyone mention Heart Island to you at that point? I never heard the term Heart Island ever in my life. Until recently, most people had never heard of Heart Island, although it's been a part of New York since 1868, when officials paid $75,000, or more than a million dollars in today's money, to make it a city cemetery. And it might have remained out of view, 
if not for COVID-19. And these shocking aerial photos showing the devastation of a pandemic on those without resources. In the last month, New York went from burying 25 bodies a week to five times as many. It's always existed on the margins of the city, and it's been the place where we have buried those who were marginalized in life for generations. What makes Hart Island so unusual, says New York City Councilman Mark Levine, is that for much of its history, it's been run by the Department of Correction using inmate labor. And it's almost a out of a Dickens novel that it's inmates from Rikers Island who are responsible for burials there. Victims of various pandemics, tuberculosis, the Spanish flu, and AIDS have been buried in secrecy and sometimes in shame. I would take the wax crayon, write the name of the deceased, uh, their last name in big letters on the side of the box. Until his release from jail in February, Vincent Mingalone placed pine boxes in mass graves on Hart Island. And what do you know about these people other than their names and the day they died? That's pretty much all we know. But you always wonder, these are fellow New Yorkers. Is this somebody who served us coffee? Was this somebody who tailored our clothes, did our laundry? The city refused to release the names until Melinda Hunt, a visual artist, sued to to obtain them. So all of a sudden... In uh, 2008, I had 50,000 burial records. Melinda Hunt created the Heart Island Project, an online memorial. The whole point of a cemetery is storytelling. The city had no reason to deny families this information. And there were so many families. And that's how, in 2009, Elaine Joseph finally discovered where her infant daughter was buried, 31 years after she died. It's not only my daughter that's buried there, it's all these others. Everybody belonged to somebody. Everybody had a mom, had a dad, had somebody. And many of them, families don't even know they're there. Visitation to Hart Island is very limited. Joseph had to schedule this birthday celebration months in advance. She left a toy for her daughter while a correction officer took Polaroids to mark the occasion. I could accept that she died. That I can accept. What I couldn't accept is that I lost track of where her body went and how she was treated after death. That final resting place has never been as dignified as it should have been. It's never gotten the respect it needed, and that certainly needs to change. Last December, the New York City Council transferred control of Hart Island to the Parks Department. Earlier this month, inmates were replaced by paid landscape workers. Many are hopeful that next year, Hart Island will be open as a memorial park, honoring those buried there. Everybody's human. We're all human. Maybe we don't all have money. We all deserve dignity. I'm Jane Pauley. Please stay safe. And join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. I'm Mo Rocca, and I'm excited to announce season four of my podcast, Mobituaries. 
I've got a whole new bunch of stories to share with you about the most fascinating people and things who are no longer with us. From famous figures who died on the very same day to the things I wish would die, like buffets. Listen to Mobituaries with Mo Rocca on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.